0: Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are here at the studio at Wisconsin Lutheran College. It was so nice of them to build us a studio. You know, it's like all, it's like mahogany. Ma- I'm just going to paint a picture it's My ma- mahogany wood and it's all it's all uh, soundproof and everything. We have like, a, we have like a, uh, a, it's a dry bar, it's not a wet bar, but we have like a little sink and Personal. I, uh, we each have our own bathroom.
1: The microphones kind of hang down from the mm-hmm. ceiling.
0: We have our own bathrooms, so we don't have to share bathrooms with I. Mine. Mine is a gold, gold plated toilet. I like the
1: ball pit too.
0: Yep. We can really, we we really appreciate what Wisconsin Lutheran yeah. College has done for the podcast. We're in the studio here, and we're back as we are going to talk about um, the life of Luther. We are on our thirty first. I think this
1: is thirty first. It might be thirtieth, but we're at least a thirty.
0: And we were just uh, on the way to the to the studio and ran into our one of our local our resident historians, Aaron Palmer, who we're hoping to have on the, on the show uh, real soon. And uh, we told him that we've made it all the way to 19 or 1525 in 30 uh-huh. some episodes. And uh, I think I think even as an historian, he was bored with that. Yeah. <laughs> that was that's a lot of detail. I think is what he was thinking. So we've made it to about 1525, and our Main topic today is going to be the Peasants' Revolt. And we could go in many different directions here.
1: Peasants' Revolt, Peasants' Rebellion, Peasants' War. It and, gets called different things.
0: And we could be talking about the... Uh, this is a last... This, this is a unique thing in Luther studies because it does go into uh, into European history... Um, economic history and social history, and peasants' war is kind of a big deal. It's also interesting for uh, us who are concentrating on the person, Martin Luther, is trying to get into his mind here. Was he naive about these things? What was his theology about this? Did he make some mistakes here? Was he actually being true to his theology as he dealt with this growing concern that the peasants were going to revolt and that there would be anarchy? And that the ruling classes, for lack of a better term, would have to do something about that. You have some Germanness kind of things here, right? You have egalitarian issues. Um, you have uh, you have all sorts of things going on here. Um, theologically, uh, you not just the ethics of work and the ethics of rule, but you have eschatology plays a point in here. Uh, it has uh, uh, you know authority and the fourth commandment. There's just a lot going on here. So uh, just to set the stage. Uh, just in a broad picture, Luther's Reformation and his actions—it's um, theological for him, um, but for many people, um, this is kind of—it's—it's it's kind of nice to stick it to the Italians a little bit, especially uh, uh, the papacy. Um, there is a sense that uh, the Italians think that they're better than the Germans a little bit, and they can come in here and sell indulgences to build their basilica. Um, Frederick, uh, uh, Frederick the, the Wise, Frederick uh, is, is okay with uh, his prince, his, or his, uh, his um, professor, his guy, standing up um of, to the powers that be, whether it be the Empire or whether it be the papacy. You have the Knights of Germany.
1: If he's and if he's not thrilled with it, he's at least tolerated. Yeah. It would be a good way to by what you mean by okay.
0: Yeah, and he's you know, he's this there's there there's a lot going on, of course, politically and, and he he's he will use it to his advantage when he can. Uh you have knights who um who have maybe a little bit of, a of, a eagerness for some sort of revolt, rebellion, kind of not necessarily class schedule. I think that class struggle, that would be kind of something that we put back onto that time, maybe a little bit, but, uh, sense of freedom individuality uh, there's a lot of things going on there and even at the diet of worms there was uh, the the masses were for luther and that was very fearful to the powers that be and there was indications of people putting the symbol of the boot which was a symbol of boot a shoe. of a of a peasant's revolt. Uh, that symbol is popping up in a, at the Diet of Worms, and, and you can almost see a chill maybe going down uh, the spine of the powers to be that they may have to deal with something. So this is all about 1524, 1525, when we start um, getting into to this issue um, where it's going to be literally a peasant's war. So I'll kick it to you, and maybe you can add what you want to right now, Wade.
1: Sure, I think one of the, the the things to lead with is the Peasants' War is interesting because it doesn't seem to have been something that was discussed um, or was even a, a prominent issue when it came to Luther and his Reformation. For much of Luther's own lifetime and several centuries that follow, it's especially going to be after the Enlightenment and in the 19th and 20th century that people become especially interested um, in the Peasants' War and what its um, what its relevance, its legacy, its impact for their own day was. <coughs> and so much of the history that's been done about the Peasants' War has been done by people who have a horse in the race. Um, a big example of that would be in the German Democratic Republic or the DDR, the, the Deutsche Demokratische Republic, um, <clears throat> which was right a Soviet satellite state, East Germany, as we tended to know it, um, was used to look to the Peasants' Revolt to see Mincer and the peasants as kind of having this first big uh, proletariat uprising. And here, <clears throat> for people who aren't maybe as familiar with Marxism. Uh, The bourgeoisie um, would kind of be the middle class um, and established powers. Uh, And then the proletariat would be the working class. Now, who all is included in the working class can vary um, depending on who you are uh, reading or interacting with. Many will include intellectuals in the working class. Um, Some will want to exclude them. But the DDR, or the GDR, or East Germany, many historians then will uh, hold Mincer up as a hero. Now, Thomas Mincer will probably get his own session at some point um, from us uh, to slow us down even more. But Thomas Mincer, early on, uh, is somewhat sided with Luther. Um, Mincer writes a, a, a German Protestant mass, uh, which Luther was, uh, I would say, o- overall pleased with at first. But Minzer will be radicalized. Um, and we'll see his role and the role of the Reformation as being, and here I'm probably being simplistic, but to bring God's kingdom on earth, uh, to bring about not just the righteousness of God, the doctrine of justification, but to actually bring God's justice, to, uh, to rearrange society in the world, to have <coughs> excuse me for my coughing, uh, this new kingdom of God on earth. And he identifies strongly then with the, the peasant class or the working class. It's important too that we understand too a peasant wasn't a peasant wasn't a peasant. Um, We can talk about peasants and mean a wide variety of things. The further east you tend to move in Europe, the more um, peasants were uh, more serfs. Think less rights, more economically exploited, more tied to the land, uh, more subject to the whims of their lords um, within the the feudalistic system. Which
0: is why we can say knights were somewhat tied in Germany to this peasant's movement where you think, come but,
1: out of feudalism.
0: But like white knights wouldn't, you know, yeah.
1: Okay. And, and so what you have also happening at this time, um, some people will say, well, Luther came out of, of peasantry, so he was really familiar with peasantry. Um, Luther's father had come from a peasant background, but Luther's exp- experience of peasantry was largely um, mining peasants, Um upwardly mobile uh, for their time, peasants uh, peasants who were rather economically well-off compared to much of Europe. The further north you went in Germany, um, from Saxony that is, the worse it it tended to be. But not every peasant's experience was the same. Um, But what was happening is you have a growing centralization of powers in Europe. You have the beginnings of the emergence of uh, what we would call today the nation-state. Germany is going to take until the 1870s to really be unified under Bismarck as a Germany. A lot of people don't realize the United States is older than Germany uh, as a, as a nation-state, um, and it's older by a century. Uh, Germany before that is a collection of, of different territories, but these territories are becoming more centralized their their, uh, geographic uh, control is expanding, but also the power of the prince within that territory is expanding. And so you're going to have peasants and um, princes who see a usefulness in Luther for what they can latch on to for what they see as themes in Luther. And one of the big issues was the the bringing of um, Roman law or new law into these territories so that peasants were actually losing some of the protections they had under the old laws of, of feudalism. For instance, and this comes up big time in England, um, enclosure, closing off of lands that were open to the peasantry before for hunting or fishing or common use, and these lands essentially get privatized, mm-hmm. right? Um so they no longer have uh, hunting rights to those, to those lands or fishing rights or water rights. Um, there's a move to make these peasants more like serfs, more tied to the land, more subject to the whims of their prince, and also more monetary obligations being placed on the, um, the peasants. We have kind of the, the growth of capitalism. It's beginning at this time where historically land is the primary way of owning wealth. to be wealth. This is why later on with the French Revolution, you're going to have many nobles who are no longer as rich as they used to be, which becomes problematic for them. Um, but money is going to play in, and so you have more tithes and monetary obligations being placed on the, the peasants too. So the peasants in Germany are reacting to something real that is happening. Um the peasants' war or revolt um, are especially going to be found in southwestern Germany. Um, interestingly, Bob Cole makes an argument that they were more influenced by some of Erasmus' writings that had been translated than by Luther's. Southwest Germany at this time was not particularly um, evangelical mm-hmm. or influenced by Luther. And so um, there had been something like 150 to 200 peasant revolts before the big peasants war that we're going to talk about. So it's not as if these revolts weren't happening before Luther, just to contextualize a contextual constant it. threat. Right. Um, the boot shoe, uh, the peasant's boot that Mike mentions um, that might appear on a flag, for instance, these this was not the first instance of this appearing. This was um, something that would happen somewhat regularly. And so you already have political, social, economic tensions at play. What will happen, is um, these things will happen at a time where Luther is writing both to the peasants and the princes. Before this time, there's plenty that Luther had said to both groups. Um, to the peasants, he had uh, sometimes corrected them for their uh, lack of support for local pastors, um, for uh, sometimes a dishonesty, um, uh price inflation, things like that, princes he had corrected for unjust practices and for not working for justice and, and for the benefit of their subjects but for their own selves. And uh, so neither was it without fault in Luther. But you can see how people would take the treatises of 1520, for example, and the princes might latch on to um, the appeal to the German nobility of the Christian nation, Right as something that it might expand princely power. <clears throat> I'm breathing heavily and coughing. and I apologize, Mike. <clears> I <throat> must be a bad allergy day. Um, and you can see how the peasants would latch on to something like the freedom of a Christian. Um, and both could be taken to serve their own ends. So you will have evangelical terminology that um, shows up, for instance, in the 12 articles that some of the peasants will um, present as an expression of their desires um, as a defense of their case. Um, But they're using the freedom of a Christian in a way that Luther did not use it. Luther is not talking about um, political freedom necessarily. Um, It's very hard to understand Luther unless you understand the political system and dynamics of his day. He is not operating um, within 20th century democracy. The princes will also take some things to defend their expansion of of their powers. Um, But that is not what Luther is necessarily advocating um, when he's writing to them. This specific peasants war, what makes the timing unfortunate for Luther, is Luther had written, um, I hope I'm not getting the the name wrong because it's often just called the admonition, but the admonition for peace, (coughs) which recognized some of the complaints of the peasants but said to them, Violence is not the answer. It will only make things worse. He then writes um, against the princes, and what is it? He writes a uh, against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants, um, which urges the princes to put down the rebellion and uses bombastic terminology, which will it – doesn't, it doesn't age well. Mm-hmm. Um, they were meant to be published as companion volumes. The admonition was supposed to be republished with against the murdering hordes, And so it was meant to be kind of um, instruction for both sides. Mm -hmm. To the peasants to say, you have some legitimate concerns, but don't turn to violence. And to the princes to say, you have a responsibility to rule well, but if there is violence, you have a responsibility to put it down. Mm -hmm. And here we have to understand something for Luther. Um, In his time, Luther was hardly the only um, academic or intellectual at his time for whom... In the, the civic realm, social order and peace was paramount because they knew how bad um, rebellion could get, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so and I could go down a list of uh, you know people who were writing similar to Luther in this. Unfortunately, the printers don't publish these together, and the against the murderous horde ends up being published right after the princes have carried out terrible slaughter of the peasants, I mean, way overboard. Um, and so it looks like Luther is defending what they've done. Luther will publish a third um, treatise later, but it's not going to be very— it's, it's after the fact, right? Um, and so it doesn't do as much good. There are Roman Catholic um, opponents, especially Cochleus, who will try to fault Luther for the peasants' rebellion and tie it to um, uh, on the freedom of a Christian— and try to blame him for the prince's reaction, but it doesn't seem that it gained much traction at that time, or for the centuries that followed, that there was a lot of finger pointing at Luther. That wasn't necessarily the case. Another thing that uh, so
0: you you're you, if I'm reading you correctly, <laughs> blaming Luther for this is perhaps more of a uh, post 1848, <laughs> right? <laughs> with the thing.
1: exception of some um, confessional opponents at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think post-1848 would be a good, way, after this European turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what will, another narrative that is there in the historiography, if you study how people have looked at these things, is this is when Luther lost the peasants. That also appears not to be true. A good work to read on that um, is Robert Cole, Bob Kolb on Luther on peasants and princes. Um, it was in Lutheran Quarterly, Volume uh, 23, In 2009, another article I'd suggest is by Kyle Sessions, an older one published in 1972, The War Over Luther and the Peasants, Old Campaigns and New Strategies, which really gets into how people use these narratives. Um, So I'll throw it back to you in a second, Mike, but I guess as I frame it, I would just say, and, and this is very similar to dealing with Luther and the Jews too, because at his time very few people picked up on um, what well, Luther wrote about the Jews. Um, and now, when there's discussions about it, it's almost always done through the lens of Nazism. Mm-hmm. We're a post Holocaust West, mm-hmm. um, and people miss out on a lot. For instance, On the Jews and the li- Their Lies was written in response to Eck, who was basically saying, Oh, Lutheranism is just Judaism. And um, mm-hmm. right. Luther was responding to something. And then he writes this terrible tract that I wish he'd never would have written, right? Um, but that, too. Tends to be studied by people who are going into it with anachronism and agendas um, and with a narrative already in place. And,
0: And you don't necessarily mean agenda as like a bad thing. Like you may be like, let's try to figure out where this anti Semitism, you know, came from and let's trace that. It's just, you can, it's very easily from an academic point of view to be like, "Ooh, that makes sense. Let's put that in there." When clearly Luther is talking about uh the theology of Judaism and not the people and and at the same time, don't say that stuff, right? And so that that's when we look at uh the peasants revolt and and just some numbers just to so you could see how Well, it just, and just
1: go ahead. <clears throat> lastly to that. Just to reemphasize again, too, Luther could not have ima- imagined um what came to be with liberal democracy in the West, right? He could not have imagined our political situation. So to want to read back and to make him either a defender of the Bill of Rights or a supporter of this strong, tyrannical, um, you know, strongman rule state, it's unfair on both counts because we're reading through the lens of um, 200 and, you know, Fifty three hundred 300 years of um, an experience of liberal democracy, and I don't mean liberal like conservative liberal, mm-hmm. I mean having freedoms enshrined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to keep in mind, um, even when the American Luther reads Luther, you have to understand the situation in which he found himself, but go ahead. Mike. Yeah.
0: So when, you know, just some numbers there, uh, you know, it depends on, okay, when did this peasants war begin or end? I mean, it's kind of a... We're talking fifteen twenty four to fifteen twenty five. I think you know, close to a hundred thousand, or maybe even over a hundred thousand people die. So it is the
1: hundred thousand number gets used a lot. Yeah, it a is number.
0: significant. Um, you're talking about this is a legit war. This and a hundred
1: thousand not... then too. Um, don't think of a hundred thousand like America has three hundred some million people. A hundred thousand people die. This is a way bigger percentage mm-hmm. of the population. 100,000 then was, I mean, it's still 100,000. I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, Dr. Meyer, forgive me. I know this is <laughs> a bad way of viewing math. Um, but it's not like 100,000. It's not the same 100,000. Is mm-hmm. that a fair way? Just yep. the same as $5 in 1950 isn't $5 now. Right.
0: And there is symbolism to it. I mean, you can take a look at 9 11 for us and say, it's actually small numbers when you think about it. Well,. Yeah, but there, there is some symbolism behind that as well. And so this peasants' uh, revolt, as we said, the numbers are, uh, there's always going to be these, these numbers here, but we're specifically talking about this event. And because it's Luther and because it's maybe such large numbers, um, it, it becomes something that's a part of European history, uh, intellectual history and economic history, I would, I would argue as well. Um, so for Luther, I think to really get into this, uh, his understanding of what's going on here is he's coming from a theological mindset. And, you know, whether he was how much...
1: And how he's much, seen all this through the doctrine of the two kingdoms.
0: And, and so the question is, was he naive that when he wrote that, how could he not have seen that this was going to be used for a slaughter or for a rebellion? I think you can say, sure. Uh, he was probably naive at, at what the, the power that his words would have. But the, he's not a politician. He's well, a theologian, too. And he's also
1: comes from peasant background, but was not immersed in the peasant life. Um, and certainly he, he is not immersed into
0: the political life of right. the elector, either. And so
1: when he goes, and I believe it's 1524 or 1525, back to Mansfeld to see family, he's shocked about like the tension among the peasants as he travels. Um, but keep in mind, too, Luther had regular interactions with the princely court or with princes, but Luther was not immersed in government either, so nope. I think it I think you said naivete, I think that's a good word there, perhaps with both he is applying biblical standards to both and he's saying and he's writing we have to remember too he's writing in Christendom, it's assumed that the subjects are Christian, it's assumed that the prince is Christian, we don't assume that any longer today mm-hmm. and he's writing to both sides and saying be Christian, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sorry for interrupting that. No, that's ahead. perfect.
0: And so, and then some maybe even a smaller, uh, or clo- maybe uh, 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 smaller lenses that he's looking through. Um, there is this, he has been working about this fanatical spirit. He has been working about this enthusiasm, God in me, this idea that we can fix the moral landscape, that there can be a utopia here on earth, and that we are driven by these. This this enthusiasm and so I don't know that he makes a distinction as we would between somebody who is Pentecostal and on fire for Jesus and somebody who is um, a, a workers picketing picketing um, some some company for workers' rights. Uh, we see those as two completely different things, but those were mixed for for Luther, and so he sees the theological problem of enthusiasm there. He is absolutely against rebellion. He says this is not how you bring about reform. Uh, you do not you do not do that. He absolutely sees that the government is in a Romans thirteen way to be obeyed because it is uh, it's God's authority that 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 puts that authority um, on us. If you disobey the Uh, secular, not secular, but the authority that's uh, above you, you are disobeying, being God. And so what's interesting, too, is that plays both ways, right? That um, this is not going to be solved by violence. This is not going to be solved by that. And yet, the kingdom of the left hand not only has the right, but the duty to keep law and order. And so then his... You know, like you said before, maybe his uh, bombastic way of writing, which he did, I mean, everything was, was uh, hyperbolic, <laughs> let's just say, that is then used as an excuse. So you have peasants maybe using his words uh, that are hyperbolic and passionate for their cause, and of course the princes on their cause. And, and I think also one thing we need to think about in all of Luther's writings is that he believes that the apocalypse is upon us. Right? I mean, he does believe that Christ is going to come uh, very, very quickly, and uh, you don't use violence for that, but you, you kind of sit back and you're going to let that happen. At the same time, he's going to say, well, maybe maybe this was the hand of God in this rebellion. Maybe this was the hand of God on the other side to put down the rebellion to bring us on our knees um, that we would finally repent. And so he's being pastoral. He's being theo, theo, theological and maybe not uh, not super well-equipped to deal with um, either side. And I think you can think about you and me. We're not rich. Um, we come from, you know, I'm a pastor's, from a pastor's family, but, you know, probably more comfortable in a blue-collar situation as you would be too. Um, and at the s- same time, like Luther, we're here, we're here, we are running a podcast instead of getting our hands dirty. Right. I mean, do we really understand what's going on? Um, at uh, when uh, you know, the UAW is picketing in Detroit, we can pretend right. like we do. Well, and Luther will on. at
1: one point, you know, say to the peasants, you know, exile is preferable to rebellion. Well, part of the problem being a peasant was you couldn't just leave, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so there is, I, I think, there is some naivety there, and yet you could see. From his theological point of view, uh, two kingdoms, rebellion's always wrong, violence is not going to solve this, um, that the, the return of Jesus is imminent, um, those against the fanatical spirit that's out there, f- those theological issues are going to color how he speaks about these, what we see as very strictly left kingdom, secular, economic issues.
1: And so um, something that Kolb brings out in that article that I recommended, um, and this applies to peasants and governmental authorities, Kolb writes, furthermore, Luther objected to their labeling their own cause Christian. He distinguished what is simply right and just in civil society, whether done by Christians or non-Christians, from what is Christian. Um, The Christian's claim to his earthly rights is based on universal justice, not some special Christian status. And so this is also an issue that is important to understand in Luther's doctrine of two kingdoms. Good citizenship and good government are things in and of themselves that belong to the kingdom of the left. A Christian prince and a Christian citizen hopefully will be a better prince and a better citizen because of their neighbor focus that is informed through faith. But he's very concerned with either side trying to raise the Christian mantle as if um, the personal rights they are asserting are an expression of the gospel because they're they're not. Maybe um, just to give a little background on the Peasants' Revolt as a whole, which maybe I should have done it first, um, the Peasants' Revolt then is going to, there's not one movement. There's not one group. Even the 12 articles are like the best possible summary of some common themes among many groups. What you'll have is localized violence that breaks out and then that builds. And we, we see that even happen in the, in the 20th and 21st century. Um, think of something like a Hong Kong today or what's happening in Iran or in Lebanon or in Colombia or in Venezuela. It's not as if there's just one big group that's upset. Um, but these groups will sort of, as things build um, and as rebellion spreads, they will coalesce. Um, Thomas Münzer will kind of jump on this and become one of the figureheads for this. It's not as if Thomas Münzer came up with it and coordinated it all. Think of a the, the Tea Party movement in America. Um, was that under Obama?
0: During, and, during his administration, yes.
1: And there was no one Tea Party movement or no one Tea Party spokesman. In fact, there were lots of people who tried to become the Tea Party spokesperson, and they'd be on cable news or whatever to represent that. But what it was was a lot of people expressing discontent <laughs> now that wasn't violent i'm not saying that mm-hmm. that's an equivalent with violence um, <clears throat> think of the um to take something from the left the uh, occupy wall street that was not one thing but it's one thing that kind of coalesced as the movement grew um this leads to one big battle which is the which is the battle of frankenhausen uh, however you want to say that frankenhausen <clears throat> um and uh this is where Thomas Münzer is captured, interrogated, and then executed about two weeks later, if I, <coughs> if I remember. Because the rebellion is put down so violently and because the victory is so one-sided for the princes, <clears throat> there is a immediate decrease in the amount of peasant revolts and, and violence. Um, but, um, but this what this was was largely a portion of 1524 and 1525 being given to manifest, um, you could feel it, instability. Um, It was largely in rural areas. There were some instances in urban areas. This is why Kolb argues, too, that these peasants were not very much influenced by Luther because at this point in the 1520s, his influence is largely in the cities, right? Right. but this is uh, imagine a year uh, of nineteen sixty eight in America, mm-hmm. right? A year where there's just a general feeling that right things so, are are popping off and they're about to get worse. Mm-hmm. And what does the future hold? Mm-hmm. And you what happens in that situation? People either get radicalized or they become very pro-government, mm-hmm. right, which we we've seen in American history mm-hmm. at different instances. Um, or in 1848, as you mentioned, in Europe yeah. with these revolutions, um, this uh, this is the this is the reality people are living in the time, and when Luther is writing, but I mean, roughly, perhaps 100,000 people are slaughtered. Some of that includes um, um, princely forces, mm-hmm. uh, but this is a, a cataclysmic event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's understandable to see um, how it would have left its mark on the psyche of Europe, and Germany in particular. So that when you have Marxist historians in the DDR or the GDR or East Germany, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, looking back, it makes sense. I'm um, in Frederick Engels, who's famously um, the colleague of Marx. <clears throat> um, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx together write the Communist Manifesto. Angles will point to this. Um, and so it's one, of, it's one of those things that um, it's like if you're looking at American history. It's one of those events that we can look back to, and people on whatever side of the aisle can find in it an explanation for why. They can create a narrative out of it, um, and they can find heroes and villains for themselves in it. Um, and so the Peasants' Revolt becomes a, a place that it's very tempting to do that. <clears throat> as far as the experience of the time, um, revolts themselves were not out of the norm, um, but this would have been one that left um, clear concern for people um, in the burger class, the bourgeoisie, and Luther is very much part of that at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Lutheran Reformation will in many ways solidify bourgeois values in Germany, I don't. there's history, historians who have written good stuff on this that I don't agree with all of it, but I think there is something um, to that uh, argument. Uh, Holy Household is a book, for instance, that talks about that. Um, but, but Luther and those on either side did not have the benefit of four or five centuries of hindsight okay. to look back. Um, what was happening was viewed by many among the peasants as... Um, now, well, by a few among the peasants, like Mintzer, it's viewed as this apocalyptic event. Mm-hmm. By many it's viewed not as a permanent rebellion, but as wanting to reclaim their their old order protections. Um, and by the princes it's it's seen as an existential threat to their very um, existence. But to be fair to the peasants too, I would say most of the peasants were not looking to be revolutionary. Mm-hmm but you had a movement of discontent that revolutionaries will almost always seize upon. Yeah. Um and and I could give I don't know how many instances in history in which this has happened. Um and this happened by the way with the Tea Party and with Occupy Wall Street as well, not necessarily revolutionaries taking but pe- people wanting to get political capital out of it, sure. right? Um and so this is a 1524, 1525, oftentimes very localized violence, but extreme violence um, that will coalesce and come to a head in this uh, Battle of Frankenhausen. Yeah, which is kind of
0: the last one of
1: this kind of period,
0: right? Right. Yeah. And um, it's right before that he writes (coughs) admonition to peace, and right after that it is, quote unquote a retract it's not really a retraction but his third treatise on the right and uh, but it's it's too late, right like Luther needed a PR firm and probably all of this this or just a printer helpful. who did what he was supposed to do <laughs> So it's it's one of those things where if you understand where Luther's coming from, you kind of you go ah you know and it's hard for us to get into that mindset but yeah, naive because he's talking theology, and its interaction with, uh, you know, what's going on in the culture and and the time, but not perhaps really understanding what's going on and how to deal with that right. with the prince. And he's
1: talking and theology to people who are knee deep in a political, social, cultural, economic upheaval and crisis. Mm-hmm. And then, and any of us who are preachers, we both know the difficulty of pe- talking to people who are knee deep in Fox News or MSNBC mm-hmm. about theology, yep. right? Um, pastors out there know you can have people who have these apocalyptic views that have nothing to do with the Bible mm-hmm. on both sides but they're they're knee deep in political cultural economic or social narratives and then you're trying to like come into that with like but Jesus says mm-hmm. and and they'll say yeah yeah we like Jesus which mm-hmm. is why you have churches on the left and the right mm-hmm. um, politically that will feed into that um, but at the same time they're like they're at war
0: right right and they feel that they're at war right oh they this know is, it this their is, lives are at stake it's a you know for for us today like i'm theoretically in a war here a metaphorical war
1: it would have been like and going to the, the rodney king riots yeah
0: and for the, for the peasants you're saying <laughs> literally we're in a war right yeah
1: so, i mean it, it would have been stepping into the detroit riots in 68 or stepping in the rodney king riots mm. or ferguson and saying uh you know there's this doctrine of the two kingdoms <laughs> The, the police who, God love them, are uh, trying to keep order, are, are looking at people who are throwing stuff at them. The people who, God love them, are very upset with injustice, <clears throat> are <clears throat> caught up in that injustice. And I, I don't mean the people who are looting or whatever. else. Uh-huh. I'm not <clears throat> sure justifying looting. <clears throat> but they already have something in front of their eyes, and, and they're not looking to be distracted from it.
0: Yeah, and then, as we see, how easy it is to take a— powerful cultural figure whether it be a religious figure or a politician or somebody from the past what they have written and take their words and say see this is our cause is righteous right. when there's obviously a lot of nuance that's going on there and i think luther would have been good with that nuance but boy you know i always kind of think luther at especially at this point doesn't know what he has like he, his words are so hot right that um and, and partly it's his fault just because he was bombastic, as you said. Um, and but he his, doesn't know the power that he has.
1: And an overarching concern of, him, of his with both sides is that both sides are discrediting the Reformation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, we should make that point right away, that this is—he's not happy with either of these groups when it comes to the presentation of the gospel. Right. Like, this is bad for the Reformation as right. a whole. Good. So we are, uh, made our way into 1525. 1525 actually is kind of a a bigger year. I mean, we have some big things coming up. We really should do Minster. We have, we have, uh, have to deal with Erasmus and um, his writings and Luther's response, uh, the captivity of the will, bondage of the will. Uh, We got this lady named Katie Luther that we need to eventually talk about. Um, we're going to start getting into maybe the Deutsche Messa.
1: We're going to have a, a prince who's dying. <clears throat> yep. This is another thing to keep in mind: with the Peasants' vote. Uh, Frederick, uh, the uh, Frederick the Wise is on his deathbed, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which makes things even more un- seem even more up in the air in, in uh, electoral Saxony.
0: Yeah. So it is a big year there, and, and last so we're going to
1: have to talk John at some point.
0: Yeah. Elector John. I'm going to put that on the list. I had I had a nice I, I had a nice list of the next seven, and now it has become. Eleven. Nice. So we see. So uh, we're slip-y. gonna get there, people. We're gonna get there to the end of Luther. Uh, we, Wade might die before um, before we get through, but I'll finish the I'll finish. Are it you off. just saying that
1: because I'm unhealthier than
0: you? <laughs> but just slightly. Yeah. Just by slightly. For out, yeah. All right. Until uh, next time, let the bird fly. what I'm I'm not drunk. I'm just a dink. I'll set him up another round. I'll set him up another round. I'll set him up another round. One more round won't get me down.